Now then, let's say, turn to the gospel according to Mark again, uh, this time in chapter 14. And uh, we'll read the other account of Christ's anointing at Bethany. So if you turn to Mark and chapter 14, and reading at verse 3. And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? for it might have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply or scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. And uh, perhaps we can focus our attention particularly on verse 8, where Christ says of Mary that she has done what she could. And then he says this, that she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now, we're resuming our study of this incident with God's help. And, of course, amongst the Lord's people, it's very well known and it's very well loved. And as Christ said, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman does here will be told, it will be preached on, and it will be spoken of uh, as a memorial to her, interestingly. It shall be spoken of, preached, and told as a memorial to her. Now, I don't need really to go over any of what we went over uh, last uh, this morning, except just very simply, briefly, to set the scene. You'll remember that this feast was provided especially for Christ. It was provided for him in the village of Bethany, which he knew well, and it was provided in the house of Simon the leper. And uh, it was provided shortly before his sufferings and death. This was to be his last Passover in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think the disciples... We're all together aware of that. I don't think 
anyone really in the room was appreciating it, uh, with the exception, as we'll see, of this woman here. Now Mary uh, takes her alabaster flask from her own house, a very expensive thing, more than likely, far and away, the most expensive thing in her house. And as Christ sits at the table, she approaches the table, she breaks the flask. Remember, these flasks were sealed to authenticate them as the genuine article, which came from India originally. And she specifically anoints him twice. She anoints his head, first of all, and then she anoints her feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And again, just by the way, like the other woman, now Mary would have heard of this other woman, doubtless, and I'm sure she was partly inspired by her and what she does here. But like the other woman, uh, she casts her own glory at his feet. Uh, a woman's hair is her glory. One of the reasons probably that it is to be covered when women gather in the assembly of the Lord's people. And here she casts her glory at his feet. She's not ashamed to take this adornment that God has given her and to use it to wipe the feet of her blessed Lord. Now, as we did last week, we're doing the same this week with herself. We're looking at this action through two very different sets of eyes. First of all, we saw what Mary did through the eyes of Judas Iscariot. He thought this action a waste. Uh, really, he would prefer the money to be put to another use. Um, his intention when he joined the band of disciples uh, was to follow Jesus Christ as the one who would bring honor and glory, not just to Israel, but to himself too. The closer he would be to the king, the more exalted he would be himself. As, as he realizes that there's no great political glory and honor attached to Christ, he becomes increasingly jaundiced with the whole thing himself. And the really dominant spirit, uh, the spirit of covetousness, comes more and more to the fore. So although he makes a fuss saying that it'd be better to sell uh, this perfume and to give the proceeds to the poor, John tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us that his real intention was to fleece his own pocket because he was already doing that with the contents of the money box. And uh, when he complained about what Mary did, sadly we, showed, we saw in the morning how that affected everybody else. Uh, he won over people who would otherwise not have agreed with him. Reminds us that the devil is not just clever. I mean, that's doing an injustice to what he achieves here. He's more than clever. As Paul tells us, he can assume the appearance of an angel of light. And his messengers can appear themselves as messengers of light. And uh, those who were the Lord's people here were persuaded by what he said. And the result was that they scolded Mary. And uh, she is left in the position of feeling that what she had done is wrong. 
uh, at least when all the Lord's people seem to gather against you and tell you that what you have done is wrong, it's liable for you to think the same way. But thankfully, her advocate is present. Uh, there's another set of eyes. And uh, the eyes that we want to see this through uh, tonight are the eyes of the Lord, the one who knows us and the one who judges us. We're told in Revelation 1 that his eyes are as a flame of fire. And I've no doubt that there, that flame represents uh, penetration and power. After all, as he moves amongst the candlesticks and as he judges the churches, he says, I know your works. We're told in the gospel, according to John, that no one needed to tell him about man, for he knew what was in man. And here he judges what Mary did. And after all, as always, it's his judgment that matters. Are you confident tonight, friend, that Christ approves of your life? And he approves of your worship and he approves of your conduct. It's a good thing to have that seal in our hearts when it is really based on the word of God. Now, if Christ saw in Judas an evil man bringing forth evil things out of the evil treasure of his heart, well, there's no doubt that he sees something completely different in Mary. He sees a good woman bringing forth good things out of the good treasure of her heart. And in what Christ says here, um, he helps us to see why she did what she did, which may be a bit of a mystery to us. I mean, why did she do exactly what she did? But in what the Lord says, he helps us to see why she did it. And he also tells us how much he values it. So why she did it and how he values it. Now, first of all, why she did it. What she does is very methodical, very planned and calculated. She anoints his head and then she anoints his feet. And uh, if we're to think of the anointing oil that was poured on the head of the high priest, we're told when it was poured that it went to the very skirts of his garments. We sang that uh, wonderful psalm this morning. So if we were to think of the flask being poured on his head, our Lord must have been drenched in this perfume. And he was drenched in it deliberately by Mary from head to foot. It is, if you like, a whole body anointing. And our Lord makes very, very plain that it is connected to his burial. She has come beforehand, he says, to anoint my body. Now notice that he doesn't say my head only, neither does he say my feet, but he takes it as a whole body anointing. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now there's a common explanation of these words of Christ. And I think it's a wrong explanation. And uh, I'll tell you what it is. The explanation most people give 
of what Mary does is something like this. They say that the that the Lord takes out of this action much more than Mary herself put into it. In other words, what they say is something like this, that Mary is not really conscious of anything particularly profound theologically, except the fact that this is our Lord and Savior. No, I, I don't mean by saying except to minimize that. I mean, what a wonderful thing that is, to be conscious of Christ as Lord and Savior. But other than that, that is all that is involved in her action. A note pouring of love, deep love, spiritual love for someone who is her Lord and her Savior. And the people who say that then go on to say that Christ takes something out of it that she didn't put into it. In other words, Christ says, see this woman. What she's done is an act of love, and I defend it. But she doesn't really know the significance of what she's done. Although she doesn't intend it, or although she didn't intend it to be so, what she's done is fitting for my burial. Now, there are several reasons, really, why I think that's wrong and really quite far wrong. I think it fails on every front. First of all, it certainly empties Mary's act of what we think is really in it. There's no doubt when we're finished looking at it tonight that it will have a lot more in it than simple love for our Lord and Saviour. And Christ seems to say here that it has more in it than simple love for himself as Lord and Saviour. But certainly that interpretation empties Mary's act. There is nothing in it but just love to a Lord and Saviour. It also empties Christ's words of what he actually said. And what he said is most plain in Mark here. I think it's plain in the other Gospels too. But here he says that she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Now there you get the distinct impression that burial was in the head of Mary. That it was an intention on her part. It's not a case of, well, she didn't mean this, but we can read it into it. Or uh, she didn't mean it, but we can get it out of it. That's not what the Lord says. He speaks of intent. She has come to, to anoint my body for burial. The, the other thing is this. I mean, if we were to take it as Christ taking out of it something that Mary didn't put into it, what does that leave us with other than confusion? Why would Christ make a, a meaningless connection, really, between what Mary is intending and his own burial? Why, why do that? It's far more natural. It's far more reverential to the words of the Lord, far more respectful to Mary, far more true to simple language, to see it as something more than that. Mary came to anoint his body for burial. Uh, let's go into that a little more fully. And let's consider together 
the various statements that the Lord makes in connection with this action. The first one is, she has kept this for the day of my burial. I think, uh, yes, that's in Matthew that he says that. Not only has she come to anoint my body for burial, but she has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, there's the intent, you see. Again, (laughs) those people who, who try to empty this out say, well, Mary didn't know that's why she was keeping it, but that is in fact why she did keep it. Now, again, that's not honest to the scripture. She has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, it's not why Mary bought it. If, uh, if it was the reason why she bought it, the Lord would have said so. If, if it was the reason she was given the perfume, if she was given it as a gift, well, I'm sure that would have been mentioned too. What the Lord says is that whatever she bought it for, and however it came into her, hand, her hands, she is keeping it there for the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's implicit in that, obviously, is that she's expecting him to die. What's more, it's obvious that she's expecting him to die before herself. Now, the the common belief in connection with the Messiah was that when he came, he would live and live forever. And the disciples themselves are so deep in that view that it's mighty hard to get it out of them. The all-glorious, all-conquering Messiah of God, when he would come, would come to stay and to establish a kingdom which would endure forever. But she clearly expects him to die and expects him to die before herself. Now, that can't be an ordinary expectation. What right has anybody to think that that would be the case? Unless she had come to understand that, and unless she had come to understand it from his own teaching, even when it was sometimes veiled and parabolic in form, there were many occasions when the Lord had to veil his sayings um, because of people. Uh, That's a right kind of veiling. There's a wrong kind of veiling that's caused by the fear of man. Uh, But there is another kind of veiling that's sometimes necessary too. But she understands his teaching. And she understands the significance of events too. These storm clouds are gathering. And she knows that things are coming to a head. Now, Christ did teach concerning his sufferings and death. And he taught these things on three clear occasions, and we actually read these occasions in our first reading. Our Lord made explicit that he would be betrayed, that he would suffer at the hands of the church authorities, that this suffering would lead to his death, and that his death would be followed by his resurrection. Now, he doesn't elaborate on these things. At least he doesn't elaborate on them with the disciples, because it's very clear that the disciples find it very difficult to take it. The first occasion on which he prophesied his sufferings and death was 
just after Peter had confessed him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, that was a great confession to make. It was, we could say, just halfway through our Lord's ministry. And uh, that period of a year and a half's teaching had made very plain to these disciples that the man they were with was no mere man. Neither was he a mere teacher or even a prophet, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. So immediately following that, Jesus begins, begins then to teach, not who he is, but what must happen to him or what he must do. The next teaching about his sufferings and death follows fairly shortly afterwards, just after the transfiguration on the mountain. And just after they have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he begins to teach them that although that's his glory, though that is who he is, he must suffer, he must die and rise again. And then, just shortly before this, before the feast at Bethany, we're taught that he prophesied the same thing again. Now, the scriptures tell us that he taught these things openly. Now, openly, it doesn't mean publicly. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We're told that the Lord commanded the disciples to keep the secret. Now, that doesn't actually come through in Matthew and in Mark, but it does come through in Luke, which we haven't read. Um, Luke doesn't actually contain a narrative of this anointing at Bethany, but Luke does tell us that when he uh, spoke of his suffering and death, that he commanded them to keep these things secret. And therefore, it's more than likely, you know, that Mary was never told explicitly that he would suffer and die and rise again. But in any case, when the disciples were told of this, their response was amazing. On the first occasion, remember what happened? Peter dragged him physically aside and rebuked him and said to him, this shall not be. Now, it's easy to minimize the importance of that. It's not just insubordination uh, and serious insubordination. It is also Peter saying, uh, your understanding of your role is very different from ours. And instead of subjecting his own understanding of Christ to Christ's understanding of himself, he insists on his own. So much so that the Lord rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You are savoring the things of men, not the things of God. Your understanding of scripture here is human. It's not divine. Uh, your plan and program for me is as humanity would devise it, not as God has devised it. But the teaching stops. And the teaching stops because they are not able to bear it. Shortly afterwards, on the second occasion when Christ begins to teach it, we are explicitly told that they did not understand and that they were afraid to ask. On the third occasion, 
we are again told that they didn't understand and that they didn't know the things of which he spoke. Now that's in spite of the fact, friends, that the scriptures tell us that he spoke openly, or as the word means there, I've said this before, plainly. No parabolic language, no types, no figures, no mystery, plainly suffering, death and resurrection. So why don't they understand? Why are they afraid to ask? Why don't they know the things that he is speaking about? Well, I can only think of one thing. I think that this is a clear case of something that, sadly, uh, most of us perhaps know very well. It's a clear case of seeing what you want to see and filtering out what you don't want to see. Or <laughs> to, to be more strict to the circumstances, it's a case of hearing what you want to hear and filtering out what you don't want to hear. Now, uh, I mentioned the common belief that when Christ would come, he would come forever. Nothing would stop his irresistible march to the throne. Nothing would stop the establishment of his kingdom, and nothing would stop the conquest of the world. There was no room in this understanding for suffering, no room for death, no room for rejection, and especially rejection by the church. And we have to remember the spiritual side of that too, in the sense that these disciples' lives were bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ now, perhaps in ways that maybe none of us really understand. These, these disciples had left everything. When the rich young ruler um, came to Christ and the Lord tested him as to his willingness to follow him, he told him to sell everything that he had and to follow him. The rich young ruler went away sad because he wasn't able to do it. Peter famously followed that up with a question. He said, Lord, uh, we have forsaken everything. What therefore shall we have? Now, the Lord's answer is interesting enough, of course, as it always is, but for another occasion. But it's the question that's interesting. We have forsaken all. And what shall we therefore have? And the Lord says that those who do forsake for his sake will receive more in this life and they'll receive it in the life to come. That's true. But these people had left everything for him. Christ was their life now. Irrespective for the moment of what they understood and what they didn't understand, there's one thing that was crystal clear to them, and that was that this Christ was the son of the living God. It was crystal clear that no man ever spake like this man. It was crystal clear, too, that he loved them. And he stood on their side. And on their part, they were glad to stand on his side. And when he begins to speak of suffering and dying, they don't want to know. Would you want to know? In their shoes, would you want to know? I've noticed through the years myself, you'll have noticed this too, how you sometimes read the Bible and you say, well, how did I not see that? I, I've, I've read this chapter. I know I've read it word for word. 
I've read this verse several times, and it's as though I've never read it before. You've had that experience. I've had another experience, too, where I'm very conscious of people uh, filtering out something that cuts across their life in the preaching of the word. Very, very conscious of people who will raise something afterwards in the sermon that has nothing to do with the life that they're living uh, when they're ignoring something that's staring them in the face. That's why, just as an aside, well, it's more than an aside, we need to approach the word of God properly when we approach it. And we need to approach the preaching of the word properly when we approach that. I mean, we need to be open to the Lord's teaching far more than we probably are, you know, far more than we probably are. That's why we need to be prayerful when we pick up our Bible. You can't just read it like another book. It's amazing what you'll miss. You've got to sanctify that reading by prayer. And the preaching of the word is no different. I mean, you can go and hear a sermon and miss miss something that's actually said. I mean, this is not like Thomas, who missed something because he wasn't there. This is missing something because, because you don't want to hear it. You need to ask the Lord to give you ears to hear, so that the ears with which you're hearing are not your natural ears, but spiritual ears. And uh, in just a few days, Christ will go through this period of suffering and death. And he is in this room with those who love him, but still don't understand that that's going to happen. As far as they're concerned, it's going to be another good and glorious Passover. Perhaps the Passover that will turn things. And I think in a few days' time, when Christ enters Jerusalem triumphantly on the back of the donkey, I think they'll think, well... Here at last is a recognition of his messiahship and his kingship. No. But friends, the fact that they didn't understand doesn't mean that no one understood. Here's a woman who comes to the table. And she understands. And what's more, he knows that she knows. She knows he's going to die. Not because he said so explicitly in her hearing, but she's come to know it from her Bible and from the general listening to the preaching of the Lord. Now, you'll remember when Christ was rebuking the two on the way to Emmaus after the resurrection. They were wandering from Jerusalem they were wandering spiritually from it as they were physically. And uh, when they showed their ignorance of the significance of Christ's death and resurrection, Christ said to them, fools and slow of heart to believe not what I said, but what was written in the prophets. Now, that's a remarkable statement, I think. It's not that long, really, since we looked at it, but it's a remarkable statement. He doesn't say to them, oh, I feel so sorry for you uh, trying to work these things out, because who could possibly have known that I would die? 
Who could possibly have known that I would rise again? That's not what he said. Fools. Fools. And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. You knew it, actually. You knew it. But you didn't believe it. And then, of course, he opens the word to them and he begins to teach them as he did to the disciples later from the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the things concerning himself. In other words, they ought to have known with their Old Testaments open exactly what was happening. But Mary's no fool. And Mary is not slow of heart to believe what the prophets wrote. She understands she understands he's going to die. She knows he's going to die in Jerusalem, even if nobody else does. And she knows that he's going to die as the Lamb of God who takes away her sins and who takes away the sins of the world. You know, friends, there's always so much more available to those who are willing to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in comparison with both others who are busy with other things. Those who study the word, and I'm, I'm not talking about ministerial study here, I'm not talking about that, but those who study the word, those who study the word prayerfully and who meditate upon it on his own word, will just simply get things, understandings and blessings that are denied other people. While I'm saying that, books and authors are good, but never let them come in between you and your open Bible. Never let them come in between you and your open Bible. And I think you'll discover as you go on in life, doesn't matter who you are, you'll discover as a Christian that what you learn from the word of God open before you as you prayerfully read it, will go deeper into your heart and will leave the greatest mark in your life. And don't lapse into that place where you think that you can't make any headway unless you're helped by a book or helped by a minister. Uh, ministers are there for a reason. Books have been written for a purpose. And none of these things is to keep you from your Bible yourself. Uh, let me encourage you to come directly to the feet of the Lord. Every time we find Mary, as someone noticed, I have no idea who it was from the scriptures, but as someone noticed, every time you see her, she's at the Lord's feet. Uh, that says a lot. It's at his feet she came to understand that he was going to die. So, why ever? She bought that flask or however it came into her possession or whatever she originally intended to do with it. By and by, she kept it there for the funeral of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said. She has kept this for my burial. But if so, the second question arises. Why doesn't she wait for that burial? If it's kept for the burial, why not wait for the burial? 
And I think there's only one explanation for that. And that's that she has come to understand fully that not only is he going to die, but he's going to rise too. And his body will need no anointing from her. And as well as coming to that understanding from the scripture, and, and as she hears the Lord preach, and as she thinks about the Lord's preaching, and as she compares that with scripture, it's, it's not only that, but she also has an experience that confirms this to her. And the experience wasn't long before this. In fact, it was perhaps just a, a matter of days or at least a few weeks before this when her brother died. Now, her brother is with her here, of course, sitting at the table in uh, the house of Simon the leper. But her brother died. And, of course, Jesus mysteriously allowed him to die. And um, when he visits the home where, where she and her sister Martha are grieving, he, he speaks to Martha first. And he says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answers by saying, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's a statement of great faith, and we should accept it as that. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But then the Lord comes back with these remarkable words. I am the resurrection. And I am the life. In other words, you, Martha, are speaking of a resurrection which will take place at the last day. And are you aware of its connection with me? But not only are you aware of the connection between me and that resurrection, are you aware of my relationship to resurrection, period? I don't, I don't just declare resurrection. I don't just declare life. I don't just teach about the resurrection to come, and I don't just teach about spiritual life. I am it. I am resurrection. I am life. I am the source of resurrection. I am the source of the life that is lived by the resurrected. Resurrection, life, it's me. And to illustrate that, he brings this dead man walking out of his tomb where he's been for three days at his command and will. At his own command and will, Lazarus, come forth. He summons him from the grave. Now, again, you know, you have such different responses to different things. Here you have another profound act on the part of the Son of God. Some people go straight off to the Pharisees and tell them what's happened. Their hearts must be like clods of earth. On her part, Mary draws the conclusion. It's a conclusion that seems obvious to us right now. Um, the conclusion she draws from, from that is this. If he is the resurrection... If he is the life, if he has power to bring my brother like that back from the dead, 
not just because he commanded it, but because he is himself the source of life and he is himself the source of resurrection, how can he possibly remain dead? If he is going to die, which I know the scriptures teach, that our great substitute must die, how can he stay dead? If he is himself life. Surely, even if he dies, he must live. And was that not, friends, what Christ had taught them? Not too long before, when he said to them, as he was teaching them in Jerusalem, in the temple itself, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to take it up again. And I'm sure Mary said, well, is that not what the prophets taught? Is that not what her forefathers believed before it was trampled down by the tradition of the Pharisees and the philosophical speculation of the Sadducees? Yes, he dies, but he lives. And so she comes to anoint his body beforehand. Well, I suppose that still leaves the question. Even if she knows he's not going to stay buried, why does she anoint him? Well, anointing has two purposes. It's a statement of preciousness and a statement of preservation. The, um, of course, the best known example of that is the Egyptians embalming the body. They took embalming uh, to extraordinary levels. And certainly one of the reasons why um, people were anointed at burial, well, it was a way just of preserving the body, an expression of the reluctance, I suppose, to, to let people go and, and so on, preservation and preciousness. But, but I think it's worth saying that what, what Mary does here when she anoints the Lord has nothing to do with preservation. She knows he's not going to deteriorate in the tomb. Um, in fact, our, our Lord did not even allow Lazarus to deteriorate in the tomb. But at least at the level of common understanding, it was before corruption set in that he released him from the grave. That's going to be true in a higher sense of himself. And she knows that. I mean, I've, I've said this to you before, but one of the most stark things about Mary of Bethany is that she's not at the tomb on that resurrection morning. When Mary Magdalene and the other women have prepared the spices and they're going to anoint the Lord's body on that first Lord's Day morning when the Sabbath is over, just at the break of day, they're ready to go and they're ready to anoint. She's not there. Why isn't she there? <laughs> It's possible for you to say, well, maybe she just simply couldn't be there. Well, let me tell you, unless she had a good reason, wild horses wouldn't keep Mary of Bethany from that company of women. Suppose she had been paralyzed, she would have got people to take her there on a stretcher. No, friends, the reason she's not there is because she doesn't need to be there. She knows she doesn't need to be there. She knows the tomb's going to be empty. She knows on the third day that the, dead, the dead Messiah or the Messiah who was dead shall live. <clears throat> now, for some reason, I don't know if Mary can understand fully why the Lord doesn't say any more about these things than he does. 
he has closed the topic. <clears throat> Nothing more is being said on his suffering and on his death and on his resurrection. And so it's not her business to say it either. But she expects an empty tomb and she expects a risen saviour. So whatever her anointing is achieving, it's got nothing to do with preservation. But preciousness is a different matter. <clears throat> Just excuse me for a second, my, my throat's dry. Preciousness is a different matter. I have no doubt <clears throat> when Mary is in this room and when she's listening to the conversation, I, I've no doubt that what really burdens her is not burdening the others. They're not discerning the times. They don't know what's going to happen inside the city just two miles away within the next few days. She knows. She knows that this Passover is the last Passover. And for her, there's no time to lose. Because as Christ says, she wants to do what she can. There's something she can do. There's an ointment that's been sitting in her home, connected with Christ's funeral, and now she knows that that's imminent. And she wants to say something in connection with Christ's death and his burial. She wants to say it in an action because she's not able to say it in words. Not because of any lack of ability on her part, but the Lord has closed his mouth, so she will keep hers clothed too. But one thing she can do is declare her love for her Lord. She can declare her understanding of his suffering and death, and she can declare her appreciation of these things just before the events come to pass. It's as though Mary is saying in what she's doing, and the Lord understands it, you know, we all know the difference between people who simply sympathize with us and people who seem to understand our situation. We value both. <clears throat> but when someone understands, and for our Lord, these things matter at a human level. They matter at a human level. <clears throat> when she comes and pours this anointment, ointment on his head, he knows that she is saying, I know that you are going to suffer soon. I know that you are going to die soon. And I know that you are going to be buried. Let me show you that I understand what these things mean. And let me show you in my anointing of you that I value these things. And as I anoint your body, I declare you, first of all, precious in your life. In all you've done and in all you've said as the prophet of God, you have taught me the way of life. Grace has flowed from your lips and in my estimation, your feet are the feet of a messenger of life. And I declare you my teacher and my prophet. I also, as I anoint you, I declare you precious in your death because I know that you're dying 
as my sacrificial victim. I know that what you are going to suffer is not for your own sake. I know that the death you're going to die is for my sake. And let me tell you now that I esteem it inestimably precious. And as I anoint you too, I declare that you are precious in your resurrection. Because I know that when you rise, you will rise as my king, and you will rise as the king of your people. O Lord, thou art my God and king, thee will I magnify and praise. And suppose no one else understands between now and then what is happening to you, you can go into your trial with this fragrance attached to you. I know that you are the prophet and the priest and the king. That is Mary's intention. And that is how the Lord sees it. How does he value it? Well, um, he values it like anybody would in a desert receiving a cup of cold water. Even, like I said, if he's surrounded by friends, he's surrounded by friends who still don't understand. And despite the gathering gloom in the city two miles away, they're still not discerning the times. And um, it's an encouragement for him along the way. But I want you to notice how he deals with her. Just three things. And again, I've, uh, you know what I'm going to say, I've mismanaged my time. But I'm going to say uh, these three things anyway, and it's something that you can uh, think about. He, he deals with her in three ways. First of all, he protects her. Leave her alone, he says. Uh, if she anoints him as her king, well, the first thing he does is defend her as her king. Um, with all the anger that's just come towards her, which uh, the devil was behind, I'm sure she was afraid. Like any woman in this situation, I'm sure she was afraid that she had done wrong. Even if she had an understanding, maybe she shouldn't have expressed it like that. But then the advocate, leave her alone. And uh, you'll notice that he says that before he says anything else. He's, he's so tender in heart and so compassionate towards his people. He's not taken up with explanations. First, he's protecting her right away. Just leave her alone. And friends, if, uh, <clears throat> if our king defends us, who can attack us? I mean, I don't know who's against you, uh, how powerful they are, but if God's for you, who can be against you? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? What's more, as well as saying, leave her alone, he says, why are you troubling her? Think, think about your thoughts. Think about your words. Think about your anger and your rage. Think about your disapproval and your supposed concern for the poor. Think that you might be being swayed by a son of the devil. And why haven't you asked me for my judgment of this instead of accepting Judas Iscariot's judgment of it? Oh, how easy it is to be human. How difficult it is to be Christian sometimes. But he protects her. 
protects her, and then he defends her. She has done, he says, a good work on me. This anointing on me is a good work on me. Her priorities are right. Now, friends, <laughs> the cause of the poor is always a good cause. It's always a good cause. But there are other good causes too. And sometimes the church forgets that. Even the church forgets that. As Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. And their presence will test you, just like the presence of Lazarus was a test to the rich man when he lay at his gate. But you can always give to the poor. That's what Jesus said. He says, you, you will have opportunities to give to the poor. And I suppose the Lord could say to them, which one of you can deny that I've been the greatest friend and benefactor to the poor? Who could deny that? Nobody could. Nobody could. But the glory of Christ is supreme. It's supreme over rich and over poor. It's supreme over everything and everyone. And there is nothing to be compared with it. And the fact of the matter is that there was no time in the history of the world like this when the Lord of glory, who had came down to this earth, was about to endure the pains of hell and to die and to be buried for our sakes. And it was fitting that that should be honoured. And the Lord says so. The poor wretch who's caused the argument and who's now selling my soul for 30 pieces of silver is the one deserving of your wrath and disapproval, not this woman who did what she could. She did what she could. She had long ago resolved to use this for the Lord. Now she uses it as the Lord is directing her. And what God requires of us is just to do what we can. He doesn't ask us to do what we can't. He just asks us to do what we can. As he says to the Corinthians, when he's calling on these poor congregations to, to help the famine-stricken congregation of Jerusalem, he says, just give whatever you have, however small it looks, because he says it is accepted according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't look at it and, and judge it according to what you don't have. He judges it according to what you have. He protects her and he defends her. Uh, I wanted to say a bit more, but I'm just going to leave that. But, but let me just say the last thing, that he exalts her. Protects her, defends her, and he exalts her. Wherever, he says, this gospel is preached, what she has done, will be told as a memorial to her. To her. Now, isn't this a remarkable thing? Um, he is the message. This is all about him. But as far as he's concerned, there's a sense in which this act is about her. How um, precious the devotion of Christ's people is to Christ himself. Even a cup of cold water given in his name, how precious a thing it is in his sight. This Mary will never be called to preach. It doesn't belong to her sex to do that. 
But what she's just done will be preached on until the end of time. And uh, that's far better. It's far better in the sense that this was a work pronounced blessed by the Lord and shall be proclaimed. There could be a preaching like Judas's own preaching, which ends up being tinkling brass, uh, sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. But this was real, and it would be preached on as long as the world lasts. Christ notices the good you do for him. He records the good you do for him, and he proclaims the good you do for him too. We're told that the good works of believers do follow them. They follow them into glory. They don't follow them to be hidden. They're open because they're a memorial. This is a memorial to her, to her. And, well, here we are speaking about it. <laughs> Again, we're speaking about it. We're preaching about it. It's well worth preaching about. But everything good done for the Lord is seen in the same way by the Lord. Now, um, this fragrance stayed long after Judas had taken a stench of unbelief out of the room with him. Uh, the Lord got rid of that. And uh, what's left behind is a fragrance that didn't just fill the whole room, we're told. Uh, we know now that it's filled the whole earth. Every time this message is preached, the alabaster box is opened again. And every time your own heart is broken, when you hear it, that's another alabaster box broken. A broken and a contrite heart. Lord, thou wilt not despise. No, far from despising it. It is so fragrant to the Lord. May the Lord bless our meditation on his own word. Let's conclude by singing again in Psalm 45, page 270. At verse uh, 13, again, uh, we're singing to the tune Dea Damata this time. Verse 13, the daughter of the king, all glorious is within. Now, that within is not a reference to inside herself, although it's true that she's uh, glorious in there too. It's actually in the chamber where she's being prepared for her king. She, she's being finely dressed and, and she is glorious there. That's a picture of our Lord uh, dressing us, as it were, in this world for our marriage yet to come. With embroideries of gold, her garments wrought have been. So there's a gold thread running through everything she wears. That's because the divine grace of God runs through everything in our own life too. And then she comes to the king in robes with needle wrought. The virgins that do follow her shall unto thee be brought. This is a complex figure because they constitute part of the church too, but it's necessarily complex. They shall be brought with joy and mirth on every side into the palace of the king, and there they shall abide. Um, and the last verse too, uh, I will show forth thy name. To generations all, 
there for the people evermore to thee give praises shall. It's often been disputed by some whose name is being shown forth here. Was it the queen or the king? Now, I have no doubt that it's actually the king, and fittingly so. But, but so is the queen's. Her name is fragrant too. Uh, let's, let's sing verses 14 to 17 to the praise of God. Let's receive the blessing of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.